This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This is a recording of Aristotle's Poetics, translated by Ingram Bywater with a preface by Gilbert Murray and read to you by Bob Foster. Chapter 4 it is clear that the general origin of poetry was due to two causes, each of them part of human nature. Imitation is natural to man from childhood, one of his advantages over the lower animals being this, that he is the most imitative creature in the world and learns at first by imitation. And it is also natural for all to delight in works of imitation. The truth of this second point is shown by experience. Though the objects themselves may be painful to see, we delight to view the most realistic representations of them in art, the forms, for example, of the lowest animals and of dead bodies. The explanation is to be found in a further fact. To be learning something is the greatest of pleasures not only to the philosopher, but also to the rest of mankind, however small their capacity for it. The reason of the delight in seeing the picture is that one is at the same time learning, gathering the meaning of things, for example, that the man there is so-and-so, is for if one has not been the thing before, one's pleasure will not be in the picture as an imitation of it, but will be due to the execution or coloring or some similar cause. Imitation, then, being natural to us as also the sense of harmony and rhythm, the meters being obviously species of rhythms. It was through their original aptitude, and by a series of improvements for the most part gradual on their first efforts, that they created poetry out of their improvisations. Poetry, however, soon broke up into two kinds, according to the differences of character in the individual poets for the graver among them could represent noble actions and those of noble personages, and the meaner sort the actions of the ignoble. The latter class produced invectives at first, just as others did hymns and panegyrics. We know of no such poem by any of the pre-Homeric poets, though there were probably many such writers among them. Instances, however, may be found from Homer downwards, for example his Margites, and the similar poems of others. In this poetry of invective, its natural fitness brought an iambic meter into use, hence our present term iambic, because it was the meter of their iams, or invectives against one another. The result was that the old poets became some of them writers of heroic and others of iambic verse. Homer's position, however, is peculiar. Just as he was, in the serious style, the poet of poets, standing alone not only through the literary excellence, but also through the dramatic character of his imitations, so too he was the first to outline for us the general forms of comedy by producing not a dramatic invective, but a dramatic picture of the ridiculous. His Margites, in fact, stands in the same relation to our comedies as the Iliad and Odyssey to our tragedies. As soon 
However, as tragedy and comedy appeared in the field, those naturally drawn to the one line of poetry became writers of comedies instead of iams, and those naturally drawn to the others, writers of tragedies instead of epics, because these new modes of art were grander and of more esteem than the old. If it be asked whether tragedy is now all that it need be in its formative elements, to consider that, and decide it theoretically and in relation to the theatres, is a matter for another inquiry. It certainly began in improvisations, as did also comedy, the one originating with the authors of the dithyramb, the other with those of the phallic songs, which still survive as institutions in many of our cities and its advance after that was little by little through their improving on whatever they had before them at each stage. It was, in fact, only after a long series of changes that the movement of tragedy stopped on its attaining to its natural form. 1. The number of actors was first increased to two by Aeschylus, who curtailed the business of the chorus and made the dialogue at spoken portion take the leading part in the play. 2. A third actor and scenery were due to Sophocles. 3. Tragedy acquired also its magnitude. Discarding short stories and a ludicrous diction through its passing out of its satiric stage, it assumed, though only at a late point in its progress, a tone of dignity, and its meter changed then from trochaic to iambic. The reason for their original use of the trochaic tetrameter was that their poetry was satiric, S-A-T-Y-R-I-C, and more connected with dancing than it now is. As soon, however, as a spoken part came in, nature herself found the appropriate meter. The iambic, we know, is the most speakable of meters, as is shown by the fact that we very often fall into it in conversation, whereas we rarely talk hexameters, and only when we depart from the speaking tone of voice. 4. Another change was a plurality of episodes or acts. As for the remaining matters, the superadded embellishments and the account of their introduction, these must be taken as said, as it would probably be a long piece of work to go through the details. Chapter 5. As for comedy, it is, as has been observed, an imitation of men worse than the average. Worse, however, not as regards any and every sort of fault, but only as regards one particular kind, the ridiculous, which is a species of the ugly. The ridiculous may be defined as a mistake or deformity not productive of pain or harm to others. The mask, for instance, that excites laughter is something ugly and distorted without causing pain. Though the successive changes in tragedy and their authors are not unknown, we cannot say the same of comedy. Its early stages passed unnoticed because it was not as yet taken up in a serious way. It was only at a late point in its progress that a chorus of comedians was officially granted by the Archon. They used to be mere volunteers. It had also 
already certain definite forms at the time when the record of those termed comic poets begins, for it was who supplied it with masks, or prologues, or a plurality of actors, and the like, has remained unknown. The invented fable, or plot, however, originated in Sicily with Epicarmus and Formis. Of Athenian poets, Crates was the first to drop the comedy of invective and frame stories of a general and non-personal nature, in other words, fables or plots. Epic poetry, then, has been seen to agree with tragedy to the extent that of being an imitation of serious subjects in a grand kind of verse. It differs from it, however, one in that it is in one kind of verse and in narrative form, and two in its length, which is due to its action having no fixed limit of time, whereas tragedy endeavors to keep as far as possible within a single circuit of the sun, or something near that. This, I say, is another point of difference between them, though at first the practice in this respect was just the same in tragedies as in epic poems. They differ also, three, in their constituents, some being common to both and others peculiar to tragedy. Hence a judge of good and bad in tragedy is a judge of that uh, epic poetry also. All the parts of an epic are included in tragedy, but those of tragedy are not all of them to be found in the epic.